Do I look like a socialist? Look at my career, my whole career. I am not a socialist. Joe Biden didn't begin his candidacy wanting to be a transformational president. Americans aren't looking for revolution. They're looking for, tell me how you're going to help me with my health care. Tell you to make me safer. Before coronavirus existed, he situated himself on the right of the primary field. He embraced centrism as both a governing doctrine and a political strategy. He contemplated cutting deals with Republicans, wistfully recalling his early days in elected office when the Senate was a clubbier place. He even told donors not to worry. His plans wouldn't ask too much of them. Biden spoke at a private fundraiser earlier this week and told the big donors that he didn't want to demonize the wealthy and added that under his presidency, no one's standard of living will change. Nothing will fundamentally change. Something fundamentally did change, though. As the U.S. faces record daily coronavirus deaths, the CDC predicts over 80,000 more people could die from the virus by the end of January. Now learn more than 33 million Americans have lost their jobs in seven weeks. The unemployment rate soaring to nearly 15 percent, the highest since the Great Depression. After coronavirus spread unchecked through the country and the economy collapsed, the noises out of the Biden campaign took on a decidedly different tone. By May of last year, his advisors cast aside their don't rock the boat mantra in favor of a new one. That Biden would plan an FDR-sized presidency. That makes Biden the only Democrat I can think of who tacked to the center during the primary, then to the left during the general election campaign, rather than the other way around. But there was good reason for it. It would have been very strange if faced with the trauma of a once-a-century pandemic, Biden's platform and rhetoric didn't change at all. But how much did it change? What's in Biden's so-called Build Back Better plan? And if it passes, will it be enough to place him in the pantheon of great presidents? Or, in the face of the gravest national crises in decades, will we look back and say he should have thought bigger? My guest this week is Mike Konzel. He's director of progressive thought at, aptly enough, the Roosevelt Institute, and author of the new book, Freedom from the Market. He's given a lot of thought to what this moment in history demands of the government, and whether Biden's biggest plans for the future meet those demands. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon. Mike Consul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So let, let's start by setting a baseline for listeners. What were your general thoughts during the Democratic primary, uh, both before coronavirus arrived and after, about the candidate's potential to put the country on a different, better trajectory? And I'm thinking particularly of Joe Biden on the one hand and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders representing the other poll. It's interesting because, um, you know, so much changed, obviously, after COVID, both for our lives, but also for the policy discussion. So you know, before that, um, you know, the economy was humming along pretty well, having, you know, President Trump had inherited a very good economy, had bolstered it with more spending, and unemployment had gotten below 4% for about two years. Um, you know, with, with unemployment getting low, the question really became about uh, more systemic problems, things like massive inequality, things like climate change, things like racial equity, these kind of like really big meta questions. And then uh, with COVID, those questions still were on the table. But survival and getting people through a really difficult pandemic was also moving along with them. So I take it then 
that from your perspective, the, the, the candidates with the most responsive answers to what the country needed before coronavirus uh, were in the, uh, like uh, further to the left of the field. And then after coronavirus, the situation kind of became a little bit more jumbled because there was this pressing need to address the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think once once Joe Biden won the nomination in, in March and April, two really notable things happened that uh, uh, I think uh, are, are very interesting, especially if you're a political junkie. One is that um, Biden, the candidate, moved much further to the left on policy. His promises became much more bold and aggressive. Part of that, I think, was um, because the needs were so great and because big things were happening and needed to happen um, in response to uh, coronavirus. Um, and second is that I think people understood that it was a pretty historic moment um, that, you know, whoever was going to win the presidency in late 2020 um, was going to walk into an economy that needed to be rebuilt uh, and that a lot of really deep problems um, with the way we arrange work and care and the long-term survivability of our economy, uh, those were going to have to be addressed in pretty fundamental ways. So I think there's a real sense um, from him and his team that he wanted it to be a New Deal moment. You heard that a lot in mid-2020. To say that he was light on policy, I think that might have been true early on in this campaign as someone who, who ran against Joe. But tonight, it was a very, very different speech that emphasized that we do need a new New Deal. And second, uh, sometime in the fall, late summer, he proposed something called Build Back Better, which was a pretty sweeping reinvention of, of climate, of manufacturing, trade, and care work. But I don't think it got the attention that it probably deserved. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. The um, craziness of, of uh, the campaign and, and, and Trump himself, a lot of that mainstream coverage didn't really take Biden's proposals as core seriously as maybe they should have. Because, you know, a lot of experts were saying Joe Biden's plans are to spend $5 trillion next year in 2021. And so far, he has spent $2 trillion with the American Rescue Plan. And the Build Back Better proposal that is being floated right now is $3 trillion. So uh, a lot of this stuff was choreographed well in advance, though I don't think a lot of people quite caught how historic it was. So, you know, correcting for coronavirus, living through a pandemic and everything else, sounds like you've been pleasantly surprised about where Biden landed on the big questions. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should take a moment and really understand how important the American Rescue Plan was. There was a lot of pressure from moderates to roll back the scale of it uh, on the assumption that the recovery might happen too fast or it might be so fast that uh, it becomes distorted or like a lot of people reenacting a lot of 2009 and 2010s era um, economic advice, which was that like, don't go too fast, like keep it, keep balance in mind. And I feel like a lot of Democrats got burnt by that, though it's very easy for a White House to derail that that kind of bold agenda. You know, um, the fact that they kept the headline number and the ambition at the scale and did not roll it back, you know, a lot of people who were following the American Rescue Plan in January really did think it was going to lose a third of its value or that, uh, you know, Senator Manchin or some others were going to take a huge bite of it. And it did get rolled back in certain ways, and most notably, uh, the Senate parliamentarian unfortunately removed the minimum wage from it. But um, the level and scale that went through, I still think, is just a total 180 from the last time Democrats found themselves in this situation. Let's talk about the question of legacy. Um, it's obviously premature to talk about Biden's legacy nine weeks into the administration, but I've been thinking about how 
all these things add up to like a potential for uh, him to be entered into the pantheon of great presidents or to not arise to the moment. In terms of ingredients, um, he needs to understand the challenges the country faces correctly. Uh, he needs to propose solutions that match the challenges, and then he needs to execute, right? He needs to get him passed by Congress and then implement them well. Um, and to dial back the clock to before the rescue plan, the first thing that made me think he was laying a good foundation for all that was the way that he and his advisors did and didn't talk about deficits. Um, did that surprise you? And what did you make of the departure from the sort of prior conventional wisdom? If you watch the way um, Democrats had fought against the Trump tax cuts in late 2017, you'll notice there was a really conscious effort to make sure that it wasn't that Donald Trump is ransoming our future or, you know, these tax cuts are terrible because we can't afford them. It was that they're really unfair. They go to people who already have way too much. Um, that was uh, done by a lot of work by activists and scholars to really say, we need to think about where that does and does not matter. And we should not always have this kind of hysterical um, reaction to it. Uh, I think a lot of the debt, um, a lot of the people who were trying to prioritize deficits really overplayed their hand during the Obama years, that you were going to have a real crisis, a collapse in governance within a few years, unless President Obama did a, a grand bargain and did all these other kinds of things, which did not happen. And then we did not have a crisis. Interest rates still remain low for the rest of the decade. So, um, you know, there was already some work built into that. That said, I think thinking the language President Biden and the people around him are using, things like, we can't do too much here. We can do too little. We can do too little and sputter. That implies that things like full employment matter a lot more uh, than just worrying about the deficit, that it does reflect a real change, a change that had been happening for a while, but, you know, it's it doesn't happen until it happens. And, you know, um, one of the reasons there were so many problems in the early parts of the Obama era on this era is that a lot of the, that hysteria came from within the White House and we're not seeing it this time. And I think that's really important. I mean, to the contrary, Joe Biden himself talks about deficits as something that we should welcome as long as there's need in the country and interest rates are low. And I just, I have not heard that kind of, you know, basically like straightforward pragmatic thinking about what deficits are for out of, you know, uh, democratic leaders for my whole adult life. So it really struck me as a departure. I, you know, I take your point that, uh, that there was a lot of effort put in by scholars and, and activists to get there. Um, I was just sort of taken with the fact that it, it landed and the, and here you have the president elect talking about running deficits to help people. Yeah, as an investment, which they are, which is the right way to think about it. And it's uh, it's also politically, like, uh, uh, people understand when you talk about deficits as an investment, especially at this moment when we need to rebuild so much. Yeah. But so, the, like, the corollary to that is how confident should we be that this is a permanent change in, in thinking and not one that will give way to the old thinking once the crisis has passed? So I think when we're, when we're talking about moments like these, like in 2010, you want to think about um, – recovery and reform as two distinct enterprises that um, often pull in different directions. Uh, and so I think we, you know, uh, President Biden is very clear he wanted a recovery bill and a reform bill. And the recovery bill has passed the American Rescue Plan, and it's it's good. It's like, it's importantly at the scale of the challenges and the scale of the problem, which is 
not normally how we've seen things happen in the last couple of decades. The fact that you have a president, uh, you know, enacting policy explicitly on the idea that unemployment should be low, people should be able to find jobs, we should run the economy at a strong and, and even heated position is um, definitely a legacy. And if it works, and I believe it will, um, I think it will change that conversation for the better. Um, however, that is limited in the context of, you know, like we're no longer in this hole that we had from the, the pandemic. The real legacy will be in reform. And there, I think the vision is on point. Here's what Mike means when he says reform. Wonks like him generally use that term to describe overhauls of or improvements to discrete areas of policy. Healthcare reform, financial regulatory reform. It's not normally how we describe emergency bills like the American Rescue Plan or infrastructure spending bills as the Build Back Better framework has been described. But beyond dispensing cash to pay for roads and bridges and rural broadband, Build Back Better will likely include permanent changes to how government subsidizes health insurance and childcare and protects labor and the environment. It will change how the government works for people. You know, reform. On this question of the political viability of this better new thinking about deficits, the old conventional wisdom was uh, that you know, quote unquote, fiscal responsibility was essential because the government needed to have spare capacity in the event of a crisis. And then the pandemic showed up and and taught us all how backwards that was, right? Like, like we had no trouble shoveling trillions of dollars out the door when people were in need, but we were also able to see how much better things might have been if the government hadn't been stripped of parts over decades. Um, so that to me adds up to like a pretty strong public case that the old thinking was wrong, but I can still um, sort of very easily imagine how the old CW might come roaring back, right? If Republicans start pretending to care about deficits again and the business lobby joins them and reporters echo it, and then moderate Democrats start to uh, lose their spines a little and then the Biden administration caves and suddenly we're right back to 2011 or something like that. Are you worried about that at all? Yes, uh, <laughs> I am I am worried, uh, and uh, it is definitely something on my radar. I mean, I think people forget how strong the the Keynesian moment of early 2009 was and how quickly it crumbled in the yeah. next two years. There's a lot of things that are different about that right now, but there's still the potential for it to, to come roaring back in, in, in a bad way. Um, a couple things that I think will be a, a couple signs of optimism. Uh, one is that it doesn't seem to be coming from the White House, which is good. Um, a lot of the people in the White House, people like Heather Boucher and Jared Bernstein, you know, helped cut their teeth during the Obama years and understanding what a weak recovery it was. And uh, electeds like um, Chuck Schumer and, and many others have talked about how they got it wrong in the early 2010s, that they were too worried about the deficit and not worried enough about a swift recovery, not realizing that the swift recovery does help a lot with the debt because as the economy grows, debt to GDP ratios fall. Uh, people are working, so they're generating more economic activity, which is better for taxes. And I think there's a leadership understands, one, that they got it wrong. They got the relative weighting of, of those two issues wrong. And two is the cynicism of the Republicans and the kind of um, the uh, the hypocritical way that they use the debt and deficit uh, during the Obama years versus when they were in office. And from the sidelines, like you can see that that was very obvious that they would do that. But I do think a lot of electeds felt actually pretty betrayed by that, particularly by the size and scale of the Trump tax cuts, which was 
probably about a trillion or a trillion and a half more than people thought it might have been uh, in the first couple of days uh, of the Trump uh, era. So, you know, th- those things add up and people do have memories on this. And so I think that that is a sign of, of um, strength that this might endure. And then separately, a strong recovery will matter a lot. And if we have big job growth through the rest of the year, you know, like that's elected seeing something work, which is ultimately how things continue is by seeing them work. Yeah, this point about um, the key Democrats kind of being snake bit by uh, by the sort of Republican bait and switch on all this stuff, the sort of you pretend to care about deficits when Democrats are in charge and you immediately revert uh, when a Republican wins and you revert right back uh, without, you know, ever bothering to explain yourself. Um, I feel like I'm surprised in a way at the extent to which um, – that's just explicitly how Democrats talk about it now. Like we are not going to be fooled again. Um, and then I think kind of ironically, the the presence of Trump as this sort of defeated but not fully vanquished foe makes it hard for Republicans uh, because they can't sweep him under the rug the way they did George W. Bush and put together a new band of young guns and then say, we just lost our way under Trump. And so now we're getting back to our true roots of being fiscally responsible conservatives uh, and demanding that Joe Biden tighten his belt and all that stuff. Democrats seem to have learned their lessons, but Republicans seem surprisingly unable to execute their own strategy of just ping-ponging between caring about deficits and not caring about it. Yeah, definitely. There's no equivalent of Paul Ryan or someone who, or, or, or the center of the intellectual energy being around the idea that you need to radically scale back government spending. Uh, in the way the Ryan plan did. And it's, it's, we talk about the Ryan plan. It's kind of like a punchline now. And it's all like sort of silly because they got an office and they couldn't do any of it, uh, except cut taxes. Um, but at the time in 2010, like it was a big deal. Like they wanted to, uh, uh, you know, privatize social security. They tried to do that under Bush. They wanted to block grant, uh, Medicare, they, or Medicaid. They wanted to voucherize Medicare. They wanted to do a lot of stuff that functionally would cut and pull back the amount of support government gives people. And, you know, when we look at the economy now, like people need Medicaid, especially rural voters who are the GOP really relies on, you know, uh, people in the upper Midwest, Republicans are, are thinking maybe might be able to make up some of their losses, um, aren't excited about, uh, you know, getting rid of Social Security or the freedom that will come if no one's on Medicare. Uh, and it's left a real intellectual vacuum that's being filled by these nationalists and, and oftentimes racists <laughs> who are not sure what they think, but it's definitely not the libertarianism of, of someone like Paul Ryan. Yeah. All right. So the so Biden and the key players have the fiscal mindset down right, the political mindset down right, at least for now. Uh, he passed the rescue plan. We know what's in that. Um, so what's in Build Back Better, and how does it fill out the picture beyond just being three trillion on top of the two trillion? So you know, it's a little bit of flux about what's actually in it, but it's pretty clear it's built around a couple pillars. Uh, and one is climate change uh, as an opportunity to invest and build a new manufacturing and innovative economy. Last year, they were talking about $1 trillion for climate um, that was really targeted towards actual investments and, you know, jobs and, you know, you know real things. Uh, now, maybe that number has gone down. We're probably going to be a big fight about that with climate groups and others. Uh, but still, it's still a central priority for this bill. And not just climate as in terms of getting a price right or, or just trying to like 
tinker with incentives or creating a trading market, but really about investments and rebuilding an innovative and manufacturing-based. Um, climate is a kind of industrial policy. And fighting carbon or fighting you know, decarbonization, fighting climate change as a type of industrial policy uh, is definitely, I think, something in the self-conception of how Joe Biden wants the economy to work better. And I think will be very popular for people when climate itself is not always the most popular thing. So I think that's a really cool and I think it's a very important part of it. And that obviously would be legacy enduring, like enduring right there. The second is uh, the care economy. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of this that had been a focal point for years, but in this past 12 months, you know, how vulnerable people are, how vulnerable our elderly are, how children are, how we don't often have a lot of support uh, for families when things go bad. You know, that kind of care work has been um, becoming more and more central. And I think COVID really put it over the edge. And there you're going to see things like um, a universal pre-K, making the child tax credit and the American Rescue Plan permanent, things like expanding uh, free community college, but also things like expanding home-based and community-based care. Uh, you know, President Biden has talked about um, the difficulty of caring for a loved one and how uh, economically insecure it makes you to do that kind of labor, which is really important for families and trying to ensure that there's money and resources there for that. So um, if, if that works and if that passes, you know, putting a firmer foundation under our care economy uh, and approaching it just as much of an infrastructure project as climate and manufacturing and railroads and, and everything else, really understanding it as a type of infrastructure our economy needs uh, would also be an important legacy to leave behind. Coming up, what will it take for Build Back Better to pass in Congress? And how would it address some of the shortcomings of the New Deal, Great Society, and Obama-era reform programs? When we return... Rubicon is brought to you by Stamps.com. The Postal Service? It's great. Finding time to go to the post office? Not always in the cards. The good news is you can mail and ship online at Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay a lot less with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, plus big discounts on mail and shipping rates. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, an L.A.-based podcast company with a D.C.-based bureau chief who needs new recording equipment, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's why nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with my promo code Rubicon, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Rubicon. That's stamps.com, promo code Rubicon. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Rubicon is brought to you by Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal, to create boutique-quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams, Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores and offers eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses, including prescription lenses, start at $95. Sunglasses, progressives, and blue light lenses are also available. And getting them is simple. Just pop onto their site and take their quiz. Tell them basic things about the fit, colors, and style you like, and you're on your way. It couldn't be easier. Warby Parker styles range from extra narrow to extra wide to fit all face shapes. Blue light filter lenses are now available and are perfect for those concerned about the effects of blue light. They filter more blue light than standard polycarbonate or high-index lenses and can be added to your order during checkout. The Warby Parker aesthetic is vintage-inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. So try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash Rubicon. Rubicon is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-first canned wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev's mission is rooted in taking charge of your choices and responsibilities and giving a voice to those who have been historically silenced. In an industry that is almost exclusively male, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. They offer five varietals, Rosé, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, as well as a limited edition extra fizzy sparkling white wine. Frankly, at this point, I'm a little offended at you all listening that Bev still has that limited edition stuff in stock. Order more of it. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy, super refreshing, and delicious. They have zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. Perfect for New Year's goals like cutting back on sugar or drinking. Bev makes it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine. Perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, and their four-packs are great for gifting, hosting, and social distance hangouts. Bev ships straight to your door, and shipping is always free. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash Rubicon. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest is Mike Konzel. He's the director of Progressive Thought at the Roosevelt Institute and author of the new book, Freedom from the Market. We're talking about Biden's $3 trillion economic plan, known as Build Back Better, which would fund infrastructure projects across the country, green jobs, pre-K, community college, and child and elder care. There's uh, talk of paying for um, for Build Back Better, at least, with some new high-end tax increases and stricter tax enforcement. How important is that piece of it uh, politically and substantively? 
So substantively, we're, we're going to see how interest rates do in the next and inflation does in the next year. My sense is that uh, interest rates will go up a little bit and normalize as they should, uh, and that there'll be some periods of small sectoral inflation as just things come back online in a herky-jerky way. But I'm not worried about sustained pressure in each of those. I think spending money on infrastructure, particularly climate infrastructure, should be debt financed. Um, in the same way you could imagine there being climate government bonds, like green bonds, um, like that kind of mentality that this is an investment and as such, like many investments, like in addition to your house, um, you know, debt financing that is appropriate. Um, so that, that is my baseline. However, um, on the other hand, you know, there is a real problem with income inequality and there is, is a good opportunity to ensure that the rich are paying a fair share, um, that they're taxed in an equitable way. That's like just following the rules on the book and, and are properly enforced. And that, you know, having them tax more to pay into the, this really important part of what our economy needs is also very appropriate. Um, you know, there's, because of the way the press is structured and because of the, the class bias and a lot of that stuff, um, there's a really intense debate about whether or not it, you're rich if you make a hundred grand a year or 400 grand a year. And that goes back and forth. And what I would really emphasize to listeners is that whatever you make of that kind of argument, once you get above wherever you draw that arbitrary line, there is so much money that even just reasonable small scale increases in taxation would net trillions of dollars. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's, uh, as a candidate, proposed a series of things. I will raise taxes for anybody making over $400,000. The very wealthy should pay a fair share. Corporations should pay a fair share. If we just took the tax rate back to what it was when Bush was president, top rate paid 39.6% in federal taxes, that would raise $230 billion. Now they're being reworked now, and they're basically lining up. And the estimates at the time were that you could raise three to four trillion dollars on stuff that taxes wealth. It's not a technical wealth tax like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders uh, proposed, but it does raise money from wealth and, and the wealthy and corporations in such a way that would be really equitable. Like most of it would fall in the top 0.1% of incomes. And you could raise trillions of dollars that would do a lot to build a more just economy. So the way I'm kind of envisioning this now is you have this three trillion dollar package you have a a tax plan that probably won't raise exactly that amount, uh, but that's wise because you should debt finance the long-term climate investments and you should uh, think of the other half of Build Back Better as redistributive, so you kind of want to uh, balance it off with higher-end tax increases. Together, this maybe serves as a hedge against inflation, whether the risk of that is high or low. Uh, and then the third piece of it is um, you also have an answer in the event that um, deficit fear-mongering comes back uh, that, like, we're not spendthrifts. We have this plan to address our uh, our spending by repealing some of the Trump tax cuts. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we should not be afraid of taxes like this. I think the immediate spending goals can come from the rich. Uh, they've been rewarded generously uh, by the economy over the past decade, and it's appropriate that they now pay more uh, and pay more for things that we desperately need in our society. Um, those taxes, I do not think, will have a harmful effect on our economy. Um, there's a question of if it is politically too hard to pass those taxes, then we shouldn't be afraid. We still should tackle climate change, and we should still ensure that we have a fair and just care economy. 
And those things can be deficit financed, uh, for the investment parts in particular. Um, but we also should not be afraid of taxing the rich. And I understand how we, it can backfire and you get into this, like, well, we can only do what we can raise money for. But on the flip side, you know, taxes on the rich should go up quite a bit. Uh, they should go up beyond what they were under the Obama years. And that we should tailor them more carefully so that they, um, tackle problems of tax avoidance and international money havens and other things that are very much on the mind of a lot of the senior people appointed uh, under Biden who have been studying this in the last 10 years and how bad it has gotten. Okay, so I'm sold on the idea that we have the right mix of concepts here. Um, But beyond getting the ingredients right, uh, I also feel like there are some obstacles uh, that have to fall and contingencies that have to swing sort of just so for this story to end happily, right? Like, uh, he'll probably, as you mentioned, need to abolish the filibuster uh, or at least radically reform it. Um, he'll need literally every Democratic vote in the Senate and no one's allowed to get sick or die. Um, and then I feel like another big X factor is that it all has to work, right? Um, we need to be looking back a year or a year and a half from now and saying that the like the roaring 20s are back um, because the government came through with vaccinations and money and the wherewithal to sustain a comeback. And then that has to translate into further political victories. Um, and so when I think about all that, what has to go right for, for this conversation to end with Biden getting the FDR size legacy that he seems to want, uh, to what extent is this whole conversation really kind of about the vicissitudes of history um, that are kind of foolish to try to game out at all? I mean, if you look at the big years for Democratic achievements, it's when they've had a lot of people in the Senate, you know, 1934 and 35, uh, mid-60s, uh, you know, like if you get over 60 senators, then you can do a lot of big stuff. Uh, you know, trying to do it with the razor-thin um, majority in the House and Senate right now is tough, but, you know, they already got some things. Here, here are some reasons I'm optimistic. Um one is that there's movement on the filibuster. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate. You had to stand up and command the floor. So you got to work for the filibuster. And now, if you want to make it a little bit more painful, make him stand there and talk, I'm willing to look at any way we can. It may not be enough, and obviously for uh, long-term advocates of removing the filibuster, it, it may not be much at all, but people are now talking about it. And I think it's gonna you're going to see more stuff in the next couple months. And even if it's just a move to the talking filibuster, even if there's other kind of more technical ways of making it harder to do, um, that's movement. Two, I contrast this moment with the Obama years. And if you think about the stuff President Obama had to do, politically is a lot harder than the stuff I think that needs to get done under Biden. One is, um, you know, dealing with health care, uh, you know, the mandate to purchase healthcare, setting up these marketplaces that are very complicated, trying to get buy-in from health insurers and, 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 and various other people with, with large stakes. Um, you know, something about healthcare, like for good reason, really upsets people and it, it, it hits them in a sensitive spot. And so that, that's politically tough, though giving money to families to be more secure is a lot easier. Uh, even though, you know, they both have different legacies, they're both very important. Uh, dealing with uh, the financial sector, dealing with the foreclosure crisis, you know, I'm very critical of how the Obama team handled the foreclosure crisis, but those politics are tough. A lot of people thought the uh, stimulus bill that they passed was another part of the, the bailouts that, that they had continued from the Bush years. Um, you know, like the politics around that kind of stuff is, is really messy and really ugly, where the politics of 
fixing a pandemic, getting hundreds of millions of shots in people's arms and hundreds of millions of checks in their banking account. It's a lot nicer. It's a lot easier to do. And it's exactly the kind of stuff that big government liberals want to do. Pouring money into the exchanges now that they're set up is easy. Uh, you know, passing a minimum wage is tough politically, but executing it is super easy. You just hang up a sign that says it's the new minimum wage. Um, so a lot of this stuff, I think, can work a lot faster and a lot easier and be more popular than a lot of the hard stuff that they had to do under the Obama years. At least I hope so. Why is it correct to think of these kinds of objectives as comparable uh, to the New Deal or the Great Society or even to the reforms President Obama uh, implemented? There you had the creation of brand new institutions and government agencies, uh, whereas this strikes me more like directing a lot of money at good ideas that already exist in some form or fashion. Sure. Yeah, it's tough because it's always, um, you know, these things are building in, on themselves and learning from the, the long history of it. Mm-hmm. So one thing you look at the New Deal, the New Deal is very much, uh, you know, a lot of people have emphasized how many of the New Deal programs left people of color behind uh, with the way Social Security, the way the Wagner Act, which structured unionization, uh, excluded domestic workers, agriculture workers who uh, were di- far disproportionately uh, black and, and particularly black women in many cases. Um, you know, there's a sense in which the new, the new deal was structured in such a way that Southern Democrats who were defenders of Jim Crow held a veto on it and really deformed how it built out and took decades to start to rectify that uh, and bring, uh, you know, those people who were excluded into those programs. Um, there's another important part of the New Deal where um, they were really like a lot of the programs were built around a household with uh, a man with a wife at home taking care of the kids. And the idea was that you would protect the male worker and then their wages would be high enough to be able to support their families. And that was already not a really feasible model by the 1950s when they started needing to do things like bringing in you know tax credits and other kinds of supports to help middle class families. But the idea of a really robust care infrastructure to ensure families can thrive and no matter what form they take, uh, and by really valuing care work as a type of labor, no less than, you know, the manufacturing worker of the mid-century period, um, that's also a legacy of the New Deal that I think a really smart, broad investment in care work that is certainly reducible to a lot of bullet points of uh, like really good ideas that we should do, even if there wasn't all this ideological um, and historical issues with it. Um, but it does help rectify and re-engineer the idea of what a just and equitable society would look like, because it would include all these things that the New Deal did not address at the time. Is what you're saying that we've, we're, we're reaching kind of like an end of history of what comprises the modern state and the main challenge now is just to appropriately resource the good parts of it? Or do you wish that there was more structural change in what is becoming Build Back Better? Um, you know, Build Back Better is something that spends money, so it might be able to pass with only 50 votes, um, where some of the other things, you know, would need to have fundamental reform of the filibuster to, to, to take on. Um, so I think, you know, all these things hang together. You know, right now is a, a very important inflection point for who our economy works for, if it's going to be broader-based prosperity, but also how the planet's going to survive in the next couple of decades, you know, whether or not it's going to continue um, to become more inhospitable to everyday life uh, with, with heating. And then also just our elections, like 
are the Republicans going to succeed in becoming a permanent minoritarian political party that can exercise huge amounts of power without ever having to think of themselves as catering to a majority of the population, much less a broad cross-sample of the population. Um, all those like definitely hang together. So I would not um, say, you know, just do one of those and then you got your legacy, but um, all of them require serious solutions. And those solutions are the kinds of things that leave legacies. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I, there, everyone monitors everything Joe Manchin says, and I, I do too, and I think that's important. But he, early on, was like, I want my friend Joe Biden to be a successful president. And with these kinds of uh, politically difficult ideas mostly off the table in favor of sort of simpler money in people's pocket kind of ideas. That really told me that there's a way for this to all kind of come together is Biden introduces a bunch of popular stuff. Republicans try to block it. Manchin realizes that for his friend Joe Biden to be successful, the filibuster has to fall and the pieces start falling into place. And in a way, in the in the sort of two, two three months since he said that, that's sort of been the trajectory we're on. And I guess you know, the legacy issue or the legacy question is good for people like Biden and Manchin to have to dwell on if only to keep their their eye on the ball. Because, you know, if you do all this stuff uh, and you help a bunch of people, but then for whatever reason, you don't win the battle for historical memory, you, you still helped a bunch of people. So it's like a good beacon, I guess. Yeah, historical memory will come and go. But right now we have a lot of battles to fight and all the battles are good ones. And the more we win, the better off people will be. And, you know, our grandchildren will judge us, however. That's a perfect note to end it on. Uh, Mike Consul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Keep sending us your questions. Our email address is rubicon at crooked.com. Listener Michael, a different Michael than last week, we swear, writes... Are there ways Chuck Schumer could use his power as majority leader to reform the filibuster all by himself? What's stopping him from just bringing a bill to the floor, calling for a vote, and forcing the Republicans to keep talking to extend debate, effectively bringing back the talking filibuster? Is there some Senate rule preventing him from doing that, which would require 51 votes to change? The answer is yes, and this gets to what the filibuster reform conversation is all about and why the D.C. establishment uses the term nuclear option to describe changes to the filibuster rules. The Senate runs on both standing rules and precedent. The standing rules hold that ending debate or invoking cloture on legislation requires a three-fifths majority. Once upon a time, Senate minorities invoked this rule rarely, generally to stop Congress from passing civil rights legislation. Mitch McConnell's innovation was applying it to basically everything, making it all but impossible for Democrats to pass their agenda. The Senate can change its standing rules, but doing so requires a supermajority. And that's where precedent comes in. The majority leader can't simply dictate that Senate rules aren't in order for this or that vote, but a simple majority of senators can. Democrats can't change the standing rules on their own, but they can create a new binding precedent that limits the cloture rule or dispenses with it altogether on legislation, just as they did on judges and other nominees. That's how a unilateral rule change works and why it tends to make the party that's doing the filibustering so angry. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. 
Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Brian Semmel. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.